1: Jared joins us this morning. Hello, Jared. Jules, hello. Uh, Good morning in your household. VCE results in. Was it a a good result?
0: It was. She had a a great result. So it's one of those moments as a parent. Claire and I have watched Beck be so dedicated and committed to her studies throughout the year. And all you really hope is that she got the result that she deserved. And uh, she, she got a great result. So the world opens up to her and whatever she would like to do next year at uni, she'll be able to do. So I'm forever grateful that that test match finished in time. You'd never ride the end <laughs> of these things, Jules, because you could drive yourself mad with them. It's like rain delays. Yeah. but uh, Damien Fleming and I, we, we confessed on air. We were riding yesterday to see if we could get home, and I'm so glad I was here.
1: Oh, magnificent. Well done, Beck. What a great start uh, to the week for you, Jared, and, and the Waitley family. What did we learn from this series against the West Indies? It was pretty predictable in terms of the result, but from the Australian team's point of view and going into the series against South Africa and obviously some big series in 2023, what did we learn out of this series?
0: Yeah, so I think the lament is that there's so little time for preparation for test series these days. And I would view these two test matches as the perfect preparation for what comes next. So there was no room to play shield cricket, but there was room as it turned out to play two test matches against a, a really ill-equipped and inferior opponent. So Australia got most of what it needed, I think to be ready for South Africa. There can't be excuses now around, uh, we didn't have time to, to have the red ball preparation that you would like, as all the batters certainly did, bar Cam Green. Uh, and the bowling obviously came with a bit of a rotation, which is not the worst result, uh, except that Hazelwood's not ready for the the start of the series. So, uh, And even Kerry got to tune up his keeping yesterday. So better than two rounds of Shield cricket is, is two test matches. Um, so, yeah, I don't feel like there are any excuses in a, in a head-to-head battle that starts on Saturday. So from that perspective, it served its purpose.
1: All the batters that had time at the crease cashed in except for David Warner. Um, how, where's he at in terms of his test cricket and how much is the pressure building ahead of this you know, first test against South Africa?
0: Yeah, I think he's got a really big decision to make over the next three test matches. So... This is a period of celebration for him. The the Boxing Day test is his 100th, and the SCG test is very likely his last test match on home soil, and that's at at his home ground. His decision is whether he makes his final bow there or whether he he tries to pursue the, the ambition to go to India and to go to England, which have always been challenging frontiers for him. So he's got that decision to make. I think for, for a champion in the final stages of his career, that, that is a really big one because you you have to, to some degree, take care of yourself while uh, acknowledging the competitive um, spirit that has driven you so far. And then second to that is if he doesn't make substantial runs against South Africa, then the selectors have a decision to make. If, if Warner's not prepared to retire himself, then he's not an automatic ticket without runs behind him. Uh, He suffers by comparison with Usman Khawaja across this year, uh, and the disparity is immense. We're talking an average of 26 versus an average of 82. Um, No centuries in India, no centuries in England. So these are are really big decisions, uh, and you never treat your champions poorly on the way out. But if Warner doesn't make the call himself, that's that's uh, the rider is if he comes out and makes big sentries against South Africa and then it takes care of itself. But if Warner can't make the decision for himself, then uh, the selectors have to look after the best interests of the team.
1: For you watching in bat, and I guess some of the experts you've got in the commentary box over the first two tests, is there any worrying signs they're picking up which might be seeing... You know some of his dismissals that have been a little bit soft. Is there any worrying signs that uh, the experts are picking up with David Warner that that might seem you know might have seen him get out a couple of times a bit cheaply in this series?
0: So I think what we're seeing is totally natural. He's the 36 year old opening batter who's played 90 uh, 98 Test matches, and at the end there is a diminishment in uh, in reaction time, in movement. And in uh, in eyesight, I think I think we see this with all the great players in the final year, in the final six months of their careers. I think that I think the signs were there against England last season at home. So he made two nineties, which were. I, Crash's description was the yes. absolute best. They were dirty day runs. They weren't <laughs> the runs yeah. that Warner usually makes. And then by the end in Hobart in the day-to-night test match, he was uh, he was edging balls and making a pair. So uh, this is just the, the completely natural phase that uh, a player goes in. His, his best days are at least a couple of years behind him. Uh, the, the question now is, is, is what he's got left, is that adequate for the tasks at hand? And that's for him to decide and that's for the selectors to decide. But uh, if he does take his final bow in Sydney, he will do so as one of the great openers and a true revolutionary in test cricket.
1: Scott Boland lit up Adelaide Oval on Saturday night. Michael Neeser bowled really well as well, just with Josh Josh Hazelwood. When he's fit again, is he an automatic selection straight back into this team or with what Scott Boland in particular has done In his limited chances at test level. Is there a big question now for the selectors?
0: I think there is, yes. As Cummins is the captain, Stark is still at the front of the attack. And then the third seamer, I think, is an open question. So Hazelwood's only played three of the last 12 test matches for Australia. What we've seen of Boland through four test matches suggests that he has disrupted the pecking order. And if you wanted to make the case that Nisa outbowled Bolan across the test in Adelaide, I think you could make that. Uh, and then it's the subjective call as to which side of the fence you sit on. It's so interesting that so Nisa's home track is the Gabba and Bolan's home track is the MCG. Mm. Do, they, do they play at home? Do they play horses for courses? Or do they choose one ahead of the other? I, I think that's it's a really interesting question. If Hazelwood is available for the MCD and it's a head-to-head race, him or Boland, I'm picking Boland. So that that tells you that there's more tension around the pecking order than there has been in a long time. And keep in mind that Hazelwood's home ground is Sydney. So you've got three quicks, you've got their home grounds, they line up in these three tests. What do you do with that? But yeah, I I feel like... um, Hazelwood as a walk-up in a three-man attack is is now under much more pressure. And that's a great scenario, is to have two who could come in and, I think, enhance the attack in their own way in that in the circumstances that were presented. Wow, what a luxury for Australia, given the demands of the next 12 months.
1: It's interesting point you make about Nisa and the Gabbard. Does your gut feel suggest, though, that Boland will still get the nod over Nisa? Or do you think it, that is generally... A 50-50 call.
0: So my gut feeling is that Boland would play ahead of Nisa because I do think in their pecking order, that's how it looks. And I felt like this, selection panel and coaching staff have honoured the pecking order which is a really important thing to do within cricket traditionally and Boland was in for Cummins and Nisa came in when there was the late injury so that told you that Boland was the next man in. Uh, My gut feeling is that's how it would land but if they did come out and say we're going to play Nisa in Brisbane and Boland in Melbourne then it would be a struggle to argue against the logic of that Uh, my feeling is Boland's in the front line attack and he plays.
1: Jared, what's another change at the top of Cricket Australia mean? Mike Baird coming in, of course, former New South Wales Premier. Lachlan Henderson stepping down in February. He's the CEO of HBF, so he's uh, relinquished his role there. What does that all mean for Cricket Australia?
0: That's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have the fully formed thought on that for now. Um, There has been a, a, a constant change in these positions, Chairman and Chief Executive, over recent years, and there'll be a search for stability. But I'm always a believer: stability only works if you've got the right people in the right jobs. So Baird, is a um, he's a former premier, so he is an accomplished public performer, as well as what he has achieved in in his corporate life and then in his public life. So he is he is a high profile chairman for Cricket Australia. What um, what what that looks like is interesting. I would imagine. The diplomacy that's required on an international front, particularly with India, I would think he would be especially well-equipped for that. And he has been a member of this board over the, the past couple of years, certainly 18 months. So the decisions that we have watched, he has had a hand in. So where we would feel the Cricket Australia board has... Um, has been less than impressive through the Tim Payne scenario, through the situation surrounding Justin Langer, and right now, in the in the David Warner fracas, which uh, has developed, he, he's had a guiding hand in that. He's not a passive board member. So Pete Lawler said yesterday, don't expect any drastic changes of policy because he has been a key maker of policy. I expect he'll be a long-term chairman, so that's um, that's a good start. I hope he's a more public-facing chairman. I think Cricket Australia would would do well to have the leaders of its sport um, visible and articulate, and the chairman can play a role in that, notwithstanding that the chief executive is the one who, who runs the organisation and is accountable for the for the day-to-day.
1: Uh, Todd Greenberg's got a lot of support. He's obviously had some big jobs in Australian sport as well, very highly regarded at the, at the ACA at the moment. Uh, can you see a time where he's working in a high-profile position at
0: Cricket Australia? I could, uh, but I don't know whether there's an appetite for that uh, in the medium term um, because of that that period of instability that has been endured. I think Greenberg's an exceptional administrator who has run one of the one of the two big football codes, and really is the the, the New South Wales warlords got him in the NRL rather than any failing. Uh, so I thought he was an outstanding chief executive. He has done all the big deals, television deals. Uh, player negotiations. So he comes with a wealth of experience. I think he's doing a tremendous job representing the players and, and the advocacy that he is providing on that front. Uh, so certainly I think he would be an, an extremely prominent candidate if they were searching for one. But these things, Malcolm Speed always uh, counsels, this is not a popular election. Mm. No one's electing the leader of Cricket Australia and that's, that's for the board and the administration to sort out where they are. And our views on the outside might be good debate, but they don't carry any weight. So Nick Hockley is right in the middle, and and I read this morning in The Australian, he's right at the pointy end of the television rights negotiation, potentially two weeks away and, and hopefully done before Christmas. That's the biggest deal that a chief executive does, and if he nails down... Uh, a deal that ensures the the future of Australian cricket for seven years and funds the grassroots, then that should be hailed as a major triumph against um, some of the issues that he's had to deal with perhaps unconvincingly in recent times. So yeah, I'm not as, I'm not as jumpy as some are on that front.
1: Yeah. It's a big time for cricket Australia. Just before I let you go, Jared, I'm not sure if you noticed there was a, a pretty big concert at the MCG on Saturday night, Billy Joel. Is he, is he a favorite
0: of yours? He is. Yeah. Yeah. I was a bit, as I say, you know, I never write. sometimes the calendar works for you, and sometimes the calendar works against you. And I was a little bit sour on Saturday night, knowing that was going on, and we weren't sitting through the most enthralling sport that I've ever called. Shall I put it like that?
1: Uh, that's I think that's fair. Apart from Scott Boland yeah. lighting it up for an over, you probably probably wanted wanted to be at the well, G, Jared.
0: Actually, no, that's a fair point, Jules. Is now that you framed it like that. Um, maybe I've been a bit, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. As, like, that that oven did make Saturday night worthwhile. But anyway, one day I'll have to go to Madison Square Garden one day to see. He'll come back, won't he? I hope he so. Jesus, got to get cricket to play a role. Yeah, hey, we all have to be able to go. There. <laughs>
1: There's <laughs> plenty of good feedback, so he'll be more than uh, he'll be more than welcome back. Jared, uh, uh, thanks again for your time and uh, congratulations to Beck again. It's always a big day when you get those VCE yeah, results, and uh, a great yeah. relief for everyone when they're good results.
0: Good on you, Jules. Saturday in Brisbane, we'll be there for it.